Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 237, part two of our series on conditioning or cardio. In part one, we discuss the unique physiology and adaptations generated by resistance training as compared to endurance training, along with the importance of cardiorespiratory fitness. In the second part, we're going to discuss how adding conditioning affects your lifting gains. A number of studies have shown that concurrent training, that is, combining cardio and lifting together in a single program, can reduce improvements in muscular strength, hypertrophy, and power compared to doing resistance training alone. This phenomenon is known as the interference effect, and today on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we're diving deep into the research to get to the bottom of this. All this and more, right after the break. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a 4-inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry-exclusive micro-adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. All right, we're here with the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing all right. Hanging out with uh, my sister in, in Hawaii. Things are things are beautiful here. Now, are there just people playing ukuleles on every corner? Because I just when I <laughs> when I think of Hawaii, I just think over the rainbow and then ukulele and then like Fifty First Dates, uh, other Adam Sandler movies. There's a fair amount of that, depending on where you go. <laughs> is Adam Sandler there? Like, can you confirm or deny that he is in Hawaii right now? Uh, he may be on one of the basketball courts around here, but as I don't <laughs> ball as hard as he does, I have not happened to run into him. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Yeah, I actually haven't been to Oahu uh, or whatever, but I, I'm told it's beautiful. It is beautiful here in San Diego. I know that our listenership is probably like, did Jordan get swept away by the hurricane by Hillary? And the answer, no. I was I was disappointed, if anything, of like the hurricane's magnitude and effect, only because again I'm from the Midwest, and so like I'm I was ready. I've seen tornadoes. I was ready for Hillary, and uh, honestly, it was a drizzle. There were people doing it. They set up a slip and slide in one of the local parks nearby, and it was like 100 people out there doing a slip and slide because it was just relatively mild. Now, I'm sure inland and like in the desert area, like they probably got hit pretty hard because they can't really handle uh, all that rain. But here, pretty much nothing. It weakened a bit by the time it got to you compared to further south. Yeah, I, 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 I guess so. I just, all, all I know is that I was waiting for something to happen. And the worst thing that happened to me, uh, was that my plant, one of my plants on, that was on my, uh, balcony blew over. So, you know, I had to pick that up. That was less I than ideal. I guess worse for you. Yes. I imagine some other folks had a tougher time than you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and anybody, in case anybody was wondering like what happened with Hurricane Hillary and, and me, we're, we're good to go. Um, before we get into this week's podcast, again, it's episode 237. We're talking about uh, conditioning. is our second part of a three-part series. We're going to talk about concurrent training, the interference effect, et cetera. Uh, 
just a few announcements. One, all of our supplements are restocked, ready to go um, online. So you can check that out on our website. They're all third-party tested uh, to make sure that what you're wanting to get in a supplement is actually in it in the correct amounts that are shown by scientific evidence to work. So all of our PeriRx uh, supplements are available. All our whey protein is available. Uh, seminars, we have our super seminar coming up in Los Angeles, the end of next month, that's September. So if you're, we're on the fence about going to a pain and rehab seminar or our normal health and performance seminar, well, what we did is we combined them together and we've got a super seminar coming up. So uh, if you're in the Los Angeles area, or if you could be in the Los Angeles area, which I feel like applies to pretty much everyone in the world, uh, being seen as how big LAX is, um, Hey, join us. Uh, we get some practical, uh, hands-on coaching and lifting and you get some lecture stuff, you get to interact with the Marvel medicine crew. Um, so that's coming up next month in October. We'll be at untamed strength. That is uh, Dr. Alan thralls gym in Sacramento, California. So big West coast swings. We'll be there for our two day health and performance seminar. Uh, and then in January we'll be in Australia, uh, in both Sydney and Perth. So if you're in the South Pacific or could be in the South Pacific, you want to take a little vacay. It's going to be beautiful down there that time of year. Uh, you can join us down under. Well, I just want to say, so people are DMing us and posting in the Facebook group and whatever, like, hey, where did this article go? And, and we're, we're doing some some backend stuff, trying to get the website to work a little bit better uh, with the Google crawling and indexing uh, algorithms so that when people search for, you know, my low back hurts after deadlifts. What do that? They end up on our website, not some other website that's going to nocebo them into like not <laughs> lifting weights. So, uh, it'll, it'll all be sorted out here shortly. We're working feverishly trying to get that done, but don't worry. None of the stuff is going away. Um, but yeah, we're, we're doing some back end work there. Uh, all right. I guess we could just pop into this week's podcast. So first up, let's do a review from part one of this podcast series. If you haven't listened to it, it's episode 236 linked in the description below. Uh, but this will help get your bearings, get your footing, so to speak, for the discussion on the interference effect and concurrent training. That is the topic of this week's episode. So first up, some definitions. Generally, physical activity is defined as movement of the body created by the muscles that increases energy use above resting levels. Exercise or exercise training is a subset of physical activity that is planned, repetitive, and structured and designed to improve or maintain health or fitness. Exercise and training are sometimes fractionated. People will be like, well, this is exercise and this is training. We don't really buy into that. And sometimes we'll just troll people and say exercise training because they're just the same things. They're just arbitrary delineations between effectively the same things. On the other hand, cardiorespiratory fitness is the capacity of the heart, lungs, and circulatory system, which is the blood vessels, uh, to support energy production during physical activity and exercise. Uh, increases in cardiorespiratory fitness improve the delivery of oxygen and energy, the removal of waste products and other related processes to maintain muscular force production during sustained efforts. This can be measured by VO2 max and other tests, and it may be communicated as exercise tolerance in the form of METs or metabolic equivalents. Having a greater exercise tolerance, particularly greater than eight METs or eight metabolic equivalents, improves health trajectory by reducing risk of death from all causes, reducing the risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and more in a dose-dependent manner, which is a fancy way of saying the more cardiorespiratory fitness or exercise tolerance that somebody has, the lower the risk is. Though this isn't linear, it does tend to taper off, but seems to improve nonetheless as you get more and more uh, cardiorespiratory fitness. Conditioning is an umbrella term that includes physical activities designed to improve endurance performance and cardiorespiratory fitness, both of which rely on the ability of the muscles to sustain repeated force production at a given level for relatively long periods of time. 
Aerobic conditioning refers to exercise done for longer durations, usually greater than a minute at sustainable paces. Aerobic metabolism uses oxygen to create energy. While the process takes a relatively long time, it is very efficient and can therefore be sustained for long efforts. Anaerobic conditioning refers to exercise done for shorter periods of time, usually less than a minute, at higher intensities that cannot be sustained. Anaerobic metabolism includes shorter alactic and glycolytic pathways. We discussed that in the previous episode, 236. So if uh, your eyes are starting to glaze over, check out that podcast. We talk about it and give you some practical examples. Uh, In any case, conditioning efforts are not black and white with respect to energy pathways used, but rather use a blend of both anaerobic and aerobic pathways uh, to create energy based on the pace, the duration, and the force production needs. So everything's working all the time. Yes, different uh, types of conditioning tasks will prioritize different energy pathways, but they're all being used all the time. Resistance training is a form of physical activity where muscles create force via contraction against a load or a weight. The load or weight may be external or internal to the individual. So like a barbell would be external and body weight sort of calisthenic exercises would use an internal load. Um, And finally, adaptations to exercise are specific to the type of exercise performed. Aerobic exercise and resistance training drive different adaptations through different pathways. Aerobic exercise drives adaptations predominantly concerned with the circulatory system, that is the heart, the lungs, the blood, and the blood vessels, along with the working muscle's ability to extract oxygen. Resistance training, on the other hand, drives adaptations predominantly related to the muscles and associated soft tissues like the bones, tendons, ligaments, etc., as well as the nerves and nervous system to improve muscular force production. Of course, there is some overlap between the two, particularly in untrained individuals. Resistance training can drive some VO2 max improvements in folks with limited cardiorespiratory fitness at baseline, though not as much and not as efficiently as conditioning. Similarly, conditioning can drive some strength and hypertrophy improvements in folks, but not as well and not as efficient as resistance training. So that's the lay of the land. I think we covered all the definitions. Austin, what say you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that the great takeaway has to do with that kind of divergent in, divergence in adaptations and the specificity of it. And as you said, at very, very low levels of fitness, yes, you can get some adaptations in the other domain by doing the opposite kind of uh, type of training, but that taps out pretty quickly such that you're not going to get continued ongoing aerobic adaptations by getting stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And conversely, you're not going to get continued strength and hypertrophy improvements by continuing to get more and more and more well-conditioned. Yeah, I like that summary. Okay. One last thing before we discuss how doing cardio affects lifting gains. What exactly counts as conditioning? So we sort of fractionated out earlier, like physical activity being different from exercise. And so I think this deserves a little bit uh, more pedantic treatment, as is our nature. We like to make sure that we're talking about the correct things. So uh, this is your warning. So the current guideline states that for substantial health benefits, adults should do at least 150 minutes, that's two and a half hours, to 300 minutes, that's five hours, a week of moderate intensity, or 75 minutes to 150 minutes a week of vigorous intensity aerobic physical activity or an equivalent combination of moderate and vigorous intensity aerobic activity. Preferably, aerobic activity should be spread throughout the week. So that was a mouthful, thing one. And thing two, what in the world? Like imagine giving that to a patient, even if it was in a pretty pamphlet with pictures and it was glossy or whatever, a patient would be like, yo, what? And I think when I did the... um, I did a podcast with uh, Dr. Hazel Wallace on the physical activity guidelines, and she was like, what's your biggest problem with these? And I'm like, they're not really actionable because the jargon thing one. And then thing two, 
you know what they should have is just a, a bunch of programs at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the guideline. Like, hey, here, you know, do you like machines? Machine workout. We were we wrote one. You you wrote one. It's in the up to date article. Uh, this is a kettlebell based workout. This is a dumbbell based workout. This is a barbell based workout. This is a you know hybrid of everything. Just have a program list just at the end. Just ten or fifteen programs that meets the current guidelines. No jargon. No nomenclature or whatever. But even if you take this, you know, somewhat specific sort of uh, paragraph here. They're, they're literally giving you, here's the dose and here's the intensity. It They don't define the terms. And it's like, <sighs> if you asked a patient after reading that, hey, what's moderate intensity aerobic activity? They'd be like, uh, great question, doc. And you'd be like, yep, I agree. So, okay, let's start with some problems. Why do they stipulate this as aerobic activity? They're like, you need 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity, aerobic activity uh, or 150 minutes of vigorous intensity aerobic physical activity or some combination of, of the two. Why do they define it as aerobic activity? Because a lot of vigorous conditioning work will be anaerobic. And they even include a huge section in their consensus report, basically all the science underpinning the latest guidelines, which were published in 2018. They got a ton of uh, data and a big uh, series of um, like sort of delving into the research on both high intensity interval training and sprint interval uh, training. And it's like, okay, so you recognize those to be very useful. So why are you calling this aerobic physical activity instead of just conditioning? And I, I just think you should call it conditioning. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a simple a, a way to encompass all of the potential modalities that you could apply here. I don't know to what extent clinicians, well, A, are like reading this at all. Uh, but if they were to read it, would read this and say, oh, vigorous intensity aerobic activity, I guess that rules out high intensity. So I don't necessarily think that they're applying it that rigidly. But I think that if you wanted to be as all encompassing in your recommendations, that would probably be a better way to, you know, make the umbrella bigger rather than less. Yeah, just call it conditioning or cardio and then talk about like, here's the minimum intensity that you need to sort of meet, get to moderate and then there is no maximum. You can go up to whatever. But, you know, you might put some stipulations in there based on people's preferences, uh, based on the total dose that people need to get these health benefits. But effectively what they're trying to do here is to tell you the intensity and the dose of cardio or conditioning that you need per week in order to get these sort of health-related benefits of improved cardiorespiratory fitness. So the next question that becomes like after just the using the word aerobic only, like suggesting that it can only be aerobic type of cardio, which is not true. So let's just call it conditioning or cardio. Second question that can, then comes up is, is there a minimum duration of activity that counts as exercise? Meaning, do you have to do some sort of moderate or vigorous intensity uh, conditioning for a set period of time in order to get some cardiovascular fitness improvements? And there's some history here that I think is actually interesting. So in 1995, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American College of Sports Medicine provided the first modern recommendation for physical activity guidelines. Uh, their recommendation stated, stated that intermittent bounce, bouts of physical activity as short as 8 to 10 minutes, totaling 30 minutes or more on most days, provided beneficial health and fitness effects. So effectively in 95, they were like, yo, it's got to be 8 to 10 minutes long. And actually that kind of got translated into Bouts of 10 minutes or more, that's what counts. And that was pretty much the case up until uh, 2018. So that carried on through the 2008 guidelines and then up until as recently as 2018 when the latest guidelines were published. Whereas research now shows that any amount of moderate to vigorous exercise uh, 
counts towards meeting that sort of target range of conditioning. Previously, insufficient evidence was available to support the value of bouts than less than 10 minutes in duration. But uh, yeah, obviously since 2008, which was the previous set of guidelines and 95, the original guidelines, a bunch of new data has come out. And this relationship that basically any duration of exercise meeting that minimum intensity, which we'll call moderate uh, intensity, uh, improves things like body composition, blood pressure, reductions in low-density lipoprotein, uh, so that's LDL. It's not really cholesterol. It's a carrier for cholesterol, but people call it LDL cholesterol. We've got a ton of material on that, so you can check that out if you really want to get in the weeds. Uh, it increases HDL, which, is, again, is a carrier of cholesterol, but people call that HDL cholesterol. There was even a study that showed that 32-second bouts of exercise actually improved HDL in a population, which I don't know what they were doing. <laughs> if you want to do 300 to 600 30 second bouts a week of exercise, you should be fine. <laughs> yeah, you'd be fine. Right, right, right. It's just like doing singles, like all singles yeah, in training. Right. <laughs> yeah, just to, <laughs> to get your volume and do 30 singles. You're like, well, that would work. It'd just take maybe forever uh, yeah. and maybe lack some ecological validity there. Uh, but yeah, same thing with like blood sugar control and more sort of health outcomes. So effectively, any duration of exercise, as long as it meets that minimum threshold of intensity, is going to improve somebody's health trajectory and does count towards those minimum guidelines. Um, probably the most telling uh, study on this was in 2018. This was an analysis of activity data from surveys collected between 2003 and 2006. And then they correlated those two death records of those participants through 2011. There was 700 deaths in that interval. And the data showed that any length of moderate to vigorous exercise contributed to health benefits associated with accumulated volume of physical activity. The authors report mortality risk reductions associated with moderate to vigorous exercise are independent of how that activity is accumulated. So yeah, theoretically, you could do, you know, 500 rounds of 20 second <laughs> bursts of exercise, again, provided it meets that sort of uh, minimum threshold for intensity. Uh, that's for health. For performance adaptations, I do not think that is as clear, owing mainly to the effect of specificity uh, of training. So sort of principle of specificity suggests that um, however you train, um, the, the maximum amount of adaptations that you're going to get uh, are kind of specific to how you've um, uh, how you've trained. And so if you only do 20 second or 30 second or 60 second sort of bouts of exercise, the main gains that you're going to get are kind of in that duration. Whereas if you only do 60 minute, 90 minute, 120 minute bouts of exercise, the main sort of adaptations you're going to get are within that duration. Obviously there's some overlap, but yeah, specificity here is important. I just think when you look at all the data on sports performance, the overwhelming sort of, uh, sense I get is that specificity of training is very important to determine the types of adaptations that you get and how you test uh, realization of those adaptations is important because you might not be able to discern like is a, you know, 30 minute bout of, you know, conditioning better than a 20 minute bout of conditioning for 20 second performance on a wind gate. And you're like, which, and if you don't know what a Wingate is, that's one of those bikes. It looks like an old timey sort of bike you would see in an exercise performance lab. It's got a weight on the front flywheel so you can adjust the resistance. Uh, don't mean to use jargon, but we just had one of those in the original House of Gains. And so Austin and I talk about Wingate stuff all the time. Uh, in any case, yeah, with respect to health, I just don't think it matters like how you accumulate the conditioning uh, volume. But for performance, I think it likely does. And it should be specific to the types of adaptations that you're trying to get 
no different than lifting, right? If you're really trying to improve your squat, you're going to have to squat uh, and not just do like kettlebell swings, for example, although there is some transference of pretty much every type of exercise on other forms of uh, tasks. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into some of the programming aspects, but you know, you don't want people to take away from that the wrong message and go way too far in, ter- in terms of hyper-specificity when it comes to conditioning either, because in the same way we talk about specificity being important in, in strength training and, and for like, say, power out, powerlifting outcomes or something like that, we still don't train or have our athletes trained with like all singles all the time on all the movements, even though that is what is being tested. There's a variety, there's some movement variation, there's some rep range variation. And when I think back to, you know, how I've trained, how I trained for most of my like swimming career, how I trained for conditioning efforts. Now there's definitely a mix of durations and heart rate targets and intensities and some stuff that's, you know, an hour, hour and a half, something like that. We, you know, swimming was massive amounts of relatively low intensity stuff. And even our sprinters would do moderate amounts of low intensity stuff paired with the higher intensity sprint, you know, uh, sessions and things like that. It's more so uh, important just to recognize that obviously you're not going to get the best adaptations in something that you leave untrained. Um, So that's kind of the the caveat there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you would still have a variety of different tasks, different types of exercise, different formats of exercise to sort of build this big base of physical development that you can then, you know, apply specifically later. But if you're trying to get a specific adaptation, leaving that untrained is probably not the move as the youth say. Okay. So we talked about definitions, probably don't just use the aerobic term. Let's just use cardio or conditioning. That seems to be well understood. And obviously the current physical activity guidelines uh, are accepting and include things like high intensity interval training, sprint interval training, um, anaerobic conditioning in general. We talked about the dose. Pretty much any dose can be used at a given time to accumulate the sort of minimum amount of recommended conditioning uh, throughout the week. So now we need to talk about intensity. So what exactly is moderate and vigorous intensity activity. The main way this has been communicated, particularly in the guidelines, is through metabolic equivalents or METs. And so it's time to talk some numbers. So light intensity activity is anything less than three METs. Uh, That'd be pretty slow walking, uh, like two and a half miles an hour or less uh, for most folks. Moderate intensity activity is the range between three to 5.9 metabolic equivalents, three to 5.9 METs. So that's like walking at two and a half to four miles per hour. Yeah, it's faster walking. Um, most people's self-selected gait speed is around three miles an hour. So that should get you in that moderate intensity sort of zone. Uh, brisk walking obviously would count there too. Vigorous intensity activity is anything greater than six METs, six metabolic equivalents. So this is fast walking, so greater than four miles an hour, pretty much anything else that uh, makes you breathe hard. And the reason why they use metabolic equivalents is because it is equivalent to the amount of oxygen that you consume per kilogram body weight per minute. So one MET equals three and a half milliliters of oxygen consumed per kilo of body weight per minute. And so it is assumed rather that one MET is the amount of energy expenditure that you use at rest. And then if every physical activity that you burn more energy uh, via muscular contraction, muscular uh, force production would require more METs and it kind of scales up and up and up uh, without end. And so a 20 MET activity would burn 20 times as much energy per kilogram body weight per minute. And there's this assumed correspondence between relative intensity and METs. So the more intense the exercise is, the more METs that you're using. 
So for example, cycling at 12 to 14 miles an hour is listed as an eight metabolic equivalent activity, whereas cycling at 14 to 16 miles an hour, so faster, is listed as a 10 metabolic uh, equivalent activity. And this is all listed in the metabolic compendium. They publish these things periodically. Uh, last one was published in 2011. That's in the uh, description below in the citations sort of list by Ainsworth uh, and company. And the latest activity guidelines recommend that, you know, 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity uh, conditioning or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity conditioning or some combination thereof, that actually translates to 500 to 1,000 met minutes per week of conditioning. So say, for example, someone was cycling at 12 to 14 miles an hour, that's an eight metabolic equivalent activity, and they did that for 20 minutes, that would be 160 met minutes worth of conditioning. You just multiply the two together. And so if you were doing a five met activity and you did that by 30 minutes, that'd be 150 met minutes, et cetera. And so you can figure out a way to add all these things together to see, uh, am I meeting the current guideline minimums or am I surpassing the guideline minimums? But there's some problems here with METs. There's some problems here. So given the ubiquity of the MET, we might assume that it is rather accurate for predicting energy expenditure. That's the whole reason why it was created in the first place to sort of figure out in the research setting, like, hey, how much energy are people using? But the value of one MET, one metabolic equivalent, was actually derived from measuring the energy expenditure of a single 40-year-old 70-kilogram male sitting in a chair. One dude. This was mind-blowing when I first learned it a couple of years ago for, for a lecture. I'm like, we've generalized the entirety of our recommendations and guidelines and measurement methods off of a, a guy. <laughs> Just a, literally a guy. And like, unsurprisingly, this value does not accurately predict energy expenditure at rest or during activity for other individuals, typically overestimating people's energy expenditure. Some researchers have suggested using a different correction factors for specific demographics, whether somebody's taller, heavier, shorter, uh, more or less trained, et cetera, to estimate the energy cost of activity, though this remains an area of active research and limits the utility for metabolic equivalents to estimate energy expenditure during activity. And to be honest, trying to figure out how much energy you use in an activity is not really something you need to do. Like, what are you going to use it for? People are like, oh, I should just eat back the calories that I burned. And it's like, so not only can we not accurately predict how much energy that you've burned during a particular task, uh, eating it back likely results in a sort of calorie surplus most, most of the time. And that's just because unless we're measuring it directly, like you're on a bike in a lab hooked up to a metabolic cart and we can, you know, accurately predict this uh, uh, with some degree of certainty and then feed you that exact amount of calories relatively certainly uh, with relative certainty, it's just the math isn't going to work out. There's still, there's still way too many variables. There's even variables that are going to differ between people as far as how the energy content of the meal that they eat impacts them, uh, differences between people and how that's, you know, absorbed and metabolized and used. And it's just, this is just way too complicated to, you know, uh, simplify it down to that degree. Yeah, I agree. And perhaps more importantly, from like a programming standpoint, the amount of METs or MET minutes that somebody does per week does not really translate to the training stress, the training load that they're sort of experiencing. And this is the analogous to using like RPE versus like the absolute weight on the bar in resistance training. 
we're, what we're trying to do with exercise programming to make sure that we get the right dose for the individual based on their current fitness levels, their goals, et cetera, is to make sure all the bits and pieces of the program on paper. So how many reps, how many sets, what's the proximity to failure, what's the average intensity, et cetera. Uh, we're trying to make sure that that generates the correct amount of training stress so that we can generate the uh, maximum amount of fitness adaptations. And so we use RPE because that better sort of translates a person's experience of the programming variables into uh, something that we can sort of codify. And so it's like, yeah, two people, you give them the same program, the same reps, the same sets, the same proximity to failure, the same, you know, average intensity or whatever. One person might rate that an RP9, another person rates that an RP7. And you're like, so that's a different sort of experience. And that would then generate a different type of training stress, which would generate different amounts of and different types of fitness adaptations and different amounts of fatigue. And so from a programming standpoint, I don't know that using METs and MET minutes is super helpful, particularly because people vary widely, wildly with, you know, the actual cost of an uh, activity, uh, you know, based on their current fitness levels, based on their previous training, based on their experience, based on all sorts of different things that just a single met number from a single dude just can't really <laughs> translate to. So we assume there's this correspondence between relative intensity and mets that the higher intensity the activity, the more METs it costs. But this is probably not uh, correct in a way that's predictable. We should probably use thresholds or different proxies instead to determine whether something is a moderate intensity activity and something is a, a vigorous intensity activity. And we're going to discuss that. Uh, this study that I, I did cite about this particular finding, this sort of discordance between METs and training stress. The quote here is, findings show that the common practice of assigning fixed values of METs to relative categories of intensity risks misclassifications of the physiological stress imposed by exercise and physical activity. These misclassifications can lead to erroneous interpretations of the dose-response relationship of exercise and physical activity. And that does have bearing on like a lot of the data on exercise and outcomes. You know, if like, oh yeah, this one group did 500 MET minutes of physical activity per week and this other group did 250 met minutes of physical activity per week. And you're like, oh, well, this, these, this group did more. But you don't really know what the physiological stress was of each of those doses. It's just a number. Yeah, I'm trying to like, I'm kind of doing this on the fly right now. And, and, and this may come out be wrong, I suppose. But I'm trying to think of like an analog in the resistance training side. Like say that you wanted to, for public health purposes, prescribe some kind of like generalized, like call it a volume load target for the population to hit, um, you know, and, and say that we classified like a 135 pound squat as like a low intensity activity, a 315 pound squat is a moderate intensity activity and a 500 pound squat is a high intensity activity. It's like, well, that certainly doesn't work across the population. So, so, so it's kind of analogous to that. Like, you know, walking at a particular intensity is going to represent different physiologic events and stressors for, for, you know, different people based on a variety of factors, but here fundamentally related to their aerobic, you know, conditioning, uh, baseline and things like that. So that's kind of, that may be a decent analogy, if not, if an imperfect one, but that's kind of how I'm, how I'm thinking about this, that might be more intuitive for people. Yeah. Imagine, you know, okay, let's say that we, we said that in general, moderate intensity activity, you know, is three to 5.9 METs. And so you're, you're telling two different patients to walk at a relatively brisk pace for 30 minutes. And you're thinking that's going to give them about five METs uh, per minute and you're doing it 30 minutes. So it's 150 MET minute load. But one of the patients has COPD 
and the other patient has normal respiratory function. Well, the person with COPD is going to have a much higher physiological stress from that sort of training event compared to the person with normal respiratory function. And it's like, well, it's the same amount of met minutes on paper, but the actual experience training load is far different. And I think that has effects on both health and also clearly performance, particularly when it comes to what we're discussing in this particular podcast, the interference effect of con- concurrent training. And so you want to get the dosing right. And I, so I don't know that using METs as a standalone, again, being based off one dude and just a number on a piece of paper uh, is the right way to do it. No more than just adding five pounds every single workout <laughs> is the right way to progress in resistance training. Um, so yeah, not one size fits all. And that can yield issues with research trying to identify the minimum intensity of exercise needed to improve cardiorespiratory fitness. You could think about looking at the cardiorespiratory fitness of a, like a well-trained athlete, right? And like walking at a brisk pace does nothing for them. And you're like, oh, see, look, even high volume, low intensity stuff doesn't improve cardiorespiratory fitness. Like, yeah, well, they're already trained. And so you'd want some sort of, I guess, more, uh, more specific to the individual factor or threshold that sort of told you, yep, they were actually doing moderate intensity activity, conditioning activity, or they were doing vigorous intensity uh, conditioning. This, this is the whole concept of internal load and like prescribing conditioning by heart rate targets as one example. You want to use something more physiologic to the individual rather than kind of more generalized that might be different for different people. Yep. So in order to make sure individuals use the correct intensity for exercise uh, in order to improve cardiovascular fitness and manage training stress, is there some way that we can create, quote unquote, thresholds for moderate and vigorous activity on an individual basis? And I'll be the first to admit here, the terminology for various thresholds that are discussed pertaining to conditioning are not standardized and admittedly can get super confusing if you read different texts, different papers, different authors. Still, two general thresholds that I feel are useful uh, to discuss, they, they emerge in the literature and they can help us determine if an activity is moderate or vigorous intensity. Uh, so in studies using blood analysis, lactate levels are commonly used to determine these thresholds. They've been compared to metabolic costs in a few different studies and seem to scale with intensity like METs are assumed to do. Uh, and each individual has their own unique sort of lactate response to a given activity, and you can establish their own sort of lactate thresholds. Before we go any further, we've got to talk about like what is lactate because people are like, I've heard that word, but I'm not quite clear on what that means. So lactate is an intermediate that is created when carbohydrates are used to create energy. During, uh, as far as its production, uh, as discussed in the last episode, muscles obtain energy to contract and create force via a number of different pathways. They can do it via stored ATP and phosphocreatine. Uh, that does not create lactate. They can do it via what's called anaerobic glycolysis. Um, and in that particular energy pathway, carbohydrates are used, both uh, stored in the muscle and uh, also uh, glucose that's taken up from the blood by the muscle. And that does tend to create lactate. And then there's aerobic respiration. That's the final pathway. Uh, and that predominantly uses fats and carbohydrates. The breakdown of carbohydrates into energy yields pyruvate, all right, which is another intermediate. And that further breaks down into lactate and another, G, another energy intermediate, which is acetyl-CoA. You don't need to know any of that. I'm just trying to impress you by this podcast. Uh, but all that is uh, acetyl-CoA, for example, is used in energy production by the mitochondria. But lactate itself spills out from the muscle into the blood when pyruvate formation from glucose breakdown, so that's sugar breakdown, uh, is greater than pyruvate oxidation in the mitochondria. And that only occurs under anaerobic conditions. Still, people just assume it's like this light switch off or on. 
Lactate is always being produced, though, in the body, at rest by tissues without mitochondria, like red blood cells, for example. So there's lactate just being produced at rest, which is why you have this relatively baseline level of lactate that is constantly being produced, transformed into um, glucose back in the liver. That's known as the Cori cycle. So people just assume that lactate is like this bad thing but it's just a normal intermediate of metabolism. It also happens uh, in medicine, like different medical contexts. So Austin, I know you draw lactate levels on patients relatively regularly. What are you, what are you looking for there? Are you trying to see like how fit they are or like what's <laughs> Well, to your point, I mean, I've checked a lot of lactate levels on people over the years and I've never come across a human whose lactate level was uh, 0.0. They always have some detectable lactate pretty much no matter what. When things are okay and they're not particularly ill, it's going to be low. It'll be, you know, 0.8 or something like that. That would, you know, one would be, you know, kind of a, a, a range that would not get my uh, attention clinically for it to raise concern. But as you mentioned, you know, this is a marker that can rise for a variety of reasons. Um, it's something that can increase if there's some kind of a block in aerobic metabolism, such, you know, such as if the mitochondria are not working properly, if they have insufficient oxygen to do their job, they're having to operate more anaerobically rather than aerobically. Um, it can happen uh, if the mitochondria themselves are poisoned or, or you know, have, have uh, some uh, uh, medical uh, issue going on that is inhibiting their function. The most common one that we would see would be something like sepsis when somebody has a, you know, widespread systemic infection that impairs mitochondrial function leading to the generation of, of lactate. Um, there are other situations, you know, relating to other aspects of these biochemical pathways. Um, in addition, when somebody has a, you know, a really turned up kind of sympathetic state sympathetic beating that kind of fight or flight uh, deal which of which sepsis is one of them um, sometimes we give people medicines like epinephrine to, to raise this kind of fight or flight state and give people lots of albuterol if they have asthma to raise this you know fight or flight kind of response that will open up their airways and help them breathe if they have asthma there are even some other kind of uh, biochemical you know uh, aspects of these biochemical pathways relating to you know nutritional status and deficiencies and things like that that can impair this metabolism and so there's a ton of reasons why lactate can be elevated um, in general we view it as something relating to oxidative metabolism mitochondrial function the adequacy of oxygenated blood getting to the organs and being used normally and so that's kind of the main way that we would use it in, in practice yeah and so principally when lactate accumulates it's a problem with either producing too much from a tissue and or a lack of clearance. Yep. So if you're not clearing as much as you're making, lactate's going to accumulate. If you're producing way too much, then what you can clear, it's going to accumulate. Um, so yeah, two different things that usually work in concert, but um, depending on what's going on, particularly in the medical uh, sort of category, uh, you may have uh, emphasis of either you're overproducing or you're underclearing it. Um, so as far as clearance goes, lactic acid, which probably people listening to this are more familiar with than lactate, is more than 99% dissociated into lactate and hydrogen. So effectively, it does not exist as lactic acid in the body. It's just lactate and a hydrogen ion. And so when people talk about lactic acid, I'm like, are you doing this because most people understand the term lactic acid or have heard the term? Or do you not know that it principally exists as lactate and hydrogen ions, which is actually kind of an important piece here. Um, it's thought actually that any detrimental effects of quote unquote lactic acid on performance are actually due to hydrogen ions, 
not lactate and that sort of local acidosis due to the accumulation of hydrogen ions. If you think back to your chemistry class, uh, increase in hydrogen ions increases the acidity of the environment. And so that local acidosis, so acidic environment, slows the transition of muscle cross bridges from low to high force state, slows shortening velocity, inhibits glucose breakdown for energy and more. Though there are other quote unquote accumulants, so things that accumulate during exercise that also contribute to muscle fatigue, such as inorganic phosphate, potassium, and more. Uh, in saying that, there are other things that can be depleted during exercise that also contribute to muscle fatigue, uh, such as depletion of ATP, depletion of creatine phosphate, depletion of glycogen, calcium, a whole bunch of other things. And so not to get too far down the rabbit hole with respect to muscle fatigue, but when you think about peripheral muscle fatigue, that is the signal from the central nervous system to the muscle has been preserved. It's the same as it always was, but the muscle itself is not able to contract as hard. Some of that is due to accumulating sort of fatigue byproducts, which would be like hydrogen ions, uh, inorganic phosphate, potassium, and whatnot. Other things are depleted. So things like glycogen, creatine phosphate, ATP, calcium, and still other uh, sort of sources of that muscular fatigue or reduced force production despite the preserved neurological signal is just muscle damage in and of itself. So if you send the same high fidelity electric signal to the muscle and it doesn't produce as much force, you can, it's either because you accumulated too much stuff, you've depleted too much stuff, or the muscle itself is uh, sort of damaged or some combination of all three. In any event, now that we know what lactate is, how can it and its presence help us establish these thresholds for what exactly is moderate intensity, what is vigorous intensity, and have that be sort of specific to the individual? Uh, another disclaimer, this is an oversimplification. There are many more terms and nuances here that, while interesting, don't really help get the point across. And honestly, this podcast is already going to be lengthy as it is, so I just didn't really want to go down in the rabbit hole and all these different terms. Um, so when we're talking about these different thresholds, we're basically talking about a lactate curve. That is, as lactate accumulates in the blood, are there any significant like sort of thresholds or breakpoints that can tell us, yep, this is moderate intensity approximately, uh, and this is vigorous intensity, and anything below this amount is probably light and doesn't count towards exercise accumulation, um, whereas anything above this sort of point definitely would. So the lactate curve has two general breakpoints or thresholds. The first is when blood lactate goes above baseline. This is known as the aerobic lactate threshold or lactate threshold number one. It is the first significant or marked or systematic increase in blood lactate above baseline. It basically marks the upper limit of nearly exclusive use of aerobic metabolism. Uh, that is, again, the m metabolism or the use of fat and carbohydrates in a steady state um, above this, blood lactate is elevated but constant and can be maintained. Uh, basically, there's equal production and removal due to increased oxidative metabolism in muscle cells. And if you're a zone person, so you subscribe to the sort of five zones of conditioning that we'll talk about in the third part of this podcast, this would be uh, zone one predominantly. And then zone two kind of straddles that line here, um, kind of half uh, just below this first breakpoint this sort of aerobic lactate threshold and half of it being above. And again, different authors, different papers, different texts will get, tell you different things, but that's the general way I conceptualize this. If you are generating enough lactate where you're above the sort of uh, thresh, uh, baseline levels, but it's at a steady state, I know for sure you are at least at moderate intensity physical activity. If you're not accumulating any lactate, I'm not as sure 
you can be pretty close to it, and that's definitely going to count. But if you're far below it, I don't know that you're actually using enough energy. There's not enough stress, so to speak, on your cardiorespiratory fitness uh, system um, to generate the sort of health and performance adaptations we associate with an increase in cardiorespiratory fitness. So that's sort of breakpoint number one. Breakpoint number two is called the maximal lactate steady state, also known as the anaerobic lactate threshold or lactate turn point. Effectively, above this level, more lactate is produced than removed. This is seen in interval training uh, uh, and other really high-intensity sort of uh, tasks. It's the highest constant exercise intensity that can be maintained for a longer period of time without a continuous rise in blood lactate. Uh, this is highly related to competition performance in endurance events. So the higher you can push this point, the higher you can develop your cardiorespiratory fitness so that your maximal lactate steady state is high. Uh, it correlates pretty, pretty strongly uh, with performance in endurance events. So for example, the R value, which is the correlation coefficient, basically how tightly two things are correlated or related to each other um, for running is 0.92 in an eight kilometer running event, uh, it's 0.87. So the closer to one, the better, uh, in a five kilometer running event and a 0.84 in a 40 kilometer cycling time trial. Um, so pretty well correlated with endurance performance above this is zone five, but between the two points, between these two sort of, uh, break points, it's mostly zones three and zone four. Again, if you subscribe to the five zone model of conditioning, uh, and at the bottom end, again, zone two sort of straddles that line. And there's just going to be an individual variance in how, you know, not only where these levels are and, 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 you know, how they differ across tasks, uh, for an individual, but you can find out sort of proxies for these levels with some testing you can do at home or by using uh, sort of a more uh, representative uh, proxy for training stress, like RPE, for example. Last thing I'd like to say here before we kind of get into practical application uh, of these different thresholds that we're describing is that, again, when we use the terms aerobic and anaerobic, this suggests clearly discernible physiological processes, but these processes are rather uh, transitional in nature with aerobic and anaerobic energetic pathways always working at the same time to contribute to energy production during both low and high intensity exercise. So an exercise that you do that's, you know, the bottom of zone two, for example, or like well below that threshold uh, number one is not just aerobic. You're using some anaerobic energy production, just like, uh, you know, something clearly in zone four or zone five, you know, close to or above that breakpoint or threshold number two is not just anaerobic. You're using some aerobic system to create energy. Yes, there's different emphasis on the sort of different bioenergetic pathways or the ways that you create energy, but it's not just black and white. It's not just a, a light switch sort of thing. You're always using all manners of energy production at all intensities. It would make no sense if you push things to an extremely high intensity that was requiring anaerobic energy production for your mitochondria to just like turn completely off and be like, there's oxygen, there's, there's some oxygen around. I'm just not going to use it. Like that's not how this works. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So how to practically apply all this stuff. So the, the whole, the whole basis of this is we, we established a sort of minimum duration for exercise activity that contributes to cardiorespiratory fitness and pretty much anything will work. We also said that, Hey, using the term aerobic physical activity is the only ways to meet the current physical activity guidelines for conditioning is a misnomer. It should just be called conditioning or cardio. So then it's like, all right, how do we practically determine the minimum intensity needed to get to that moderate level or the vigorous level? And so 
there are kind of uh, there are multiple ways to do this. The way that we'll address here is a sort of practical application using RPE that doesn't require any sort of testing. So you don't need a heart rate monitor. You don't need to get on a you know a bike or a treadmill or something like that and do a graded exercise test to like determine what is my lactate threshold number one. What is the second one? And then like try to you know figure out what heart rates you're normally at and then use percentages. That's all in the next episode. We will go down the rabbit hole. I will tell you how to do this and, and create your own zone one, zone two, zone three, zone four, zone five chart. And you know how that, you know, you can use that to program appropriately. But in absent of, absence of doing all that, you can just use RPE. And so all of our templates include this sort of RPE chart for conditioning, where we talk about, you know, something that's like RP6 is more boring than hard. It's easy to maintain. You can speak in full sentences without difficulty. You can sing short stanzas. Uh, basically, you have your, ventil, uh, your ventilation is such that you're not breathing so hard that you couldn't do either of those things. And that's somewhat correlated to that sort of first breakpoint, so to speak. Whereas if you go all the way up to RP10, maximum effort that is very fatiguing, difficult to perform, cannot speak at all during the activity, at that point, you're above that sort of second uh, break point. And so the way I kind of use this to program without any sort of testing, without any sort of heart rate monitoring, heart rate data, telling people, hey, this heart rate is where you should be at, um, anything less than like an RP5 is light effort, probably does not meet the minimum threshold for moderate intensity activity, whereas something that's RP5 to 6 probably does meet that sort of minimum intensity to be called moderate conditioning. It's, zone, it's mostly zone 2 probably at that point. Uh, but if you ratchet it up to like RP8, so a moderately difficult pace that requires significant effort to maintain and perform, you can maybe speak in one or two word phrases only, you're probably looking at zone three, zone four or higher. Obviously, if you ratchet up to RP9 or 10, you're probably zone four, zone five. Um, you know, but you can use this sort of practically in your own training to say, all right, is the conditioning that I'm doing right now, I'm on the treadmill, I'm on the bike, I'm on the Stairmaster, I'm on the bike outside, I'm swimming, whatever. Does this count towards my physical activity? Uh, my conditioning uh, 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 to meet the guideline minimums. If you're rating an RP6, you're good to go. Six or higher, you're good to go. Now, whether you want to fractionate a lot of your exercise volume into moderate or vigorous intensity, that's more of a personal decision, right? Uh, and also just how much time you're going to allot to this to meet those minimums. But I think sort of using that as a heuristic is fine. Again, RP6, probably your target. For moderate intensity, RP8 or higher, probably your target for vigorous. And that's, again, on a 1 to 10 scale where 1 is rest and 10 is max effort, can't do anything, can't speak at all. Um, and again, I am accepting a decent amount of squish here, fuzziness. Uh, I would rather, I would love to test everybody. Hey, go do this particular test. Monitor your heart rate during the whole time. Send me the data. Everybody gets I, a I, lactate meter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can, I can, I can get a lot. I can hone in on a more individualized sort of profile here. But you know, back of the envelope, sort of, hey, take this home, use this. I think RPE is a fine proxy, um, particularly because it doesn't create barriers to sort of participation, and it doesn't run the risk of misclassifying intensities. Somebody's like, I'm doing hours of cardio per week, and it's like, cool. How hard is it? And, you know, if it's super, super easy, their heart rate, you know, is very, very low and they can, you know, they're not even close to that ventilatory threshold, which we think kind of lines up with that first lactate threshold. It may not actually be giving them a ton of benefit from with respect to health and or performance. And so, uh, you know, and just like you can't tell somebody to cycle at a particular pace 
and generally apply that to a bunch of people or run at a particular pace and generally apply that to a lot of people. It's going to matter uh, what your current fitness levels are, what your history uh, of training is. Like, are you a great runner, but a terrible cyclist or vice versa? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of individual variation here that I think RPE kind of covers up. But again, I would love to do some testing and give people a more specific number, just like I would do an exercise, you know, but uh, for generalizability, I think RPE here is, is useful. What do you think about that, Austin? Yeah. I mean, I think that for the vast majority of our, you know, folks that we work with from a coaching standpoint, RPE targets, or if, you know, we, if, if kind of like how we have RPE targets for a lot of strength training, you know, recommendations, but sometimes people will also prefer like maybe a percentage of one rep max kind of range to help them get in a ballpark. And then within that, there's some room. We'd probably do something similar in terms of RPE efforts for conditioning, and then also potentially giving somebody a, a kind of a heart rate range that they might be aiming for to give them some additional tools to try to get closer to what we actually want them to do. Yeah. Yeah, to summarize this section before we pop into the interference effect and concurrent training. Uh, first, let's just get the nomenclature uh, just stop using it just look if you're if you're gonna form uh let's see if they did the first one in 95 second one in 2008 third one 2018 the fourth one's maybe 20 2028 20, if you're listening to this do not use the term aerobic activity just use conditioning or cardio just use both uh so it encapsulates everything uh as far as minimum duration pretty much any amount uh, counts towards accumulating stuff for health benefits. Performance uh, benefits likely vary due to the principle of specificity. As far as how intense the conditioning efforts should be, you can use METs. You can use that metabolic compendium to sort of ballpark, hey, this should cost about five METs or six METs or whatever because there's pacing and there's specifics in each sort of activity that you can get close. But I would probably use RPE on top of that to sort of dial it in based on your current fitness levels, your experience with the particular mode or task that you're doing. Um, and again, some testing may be beneficial to create an individualized target heart rate for various zones of training um, to sort of narrow, like, okay, this is moderate, this is vigorous. And then again, maybe also for performance uh, and controlling the total training stress, that might be useful as well. And we'll cover that in the final installment, the next episode on conditioning. Okay. Final part here. How does conditioning interact with resistance training? So again, we got to go back to some definitions here. This is called concurrent training, which is defined as the inclusion of resistance training with aerobic exercise, again, there's a freaking phrase in a single program, and that's called concurrent training. So generally, concurrent training studies have three groups, one that only does resistance training, one that only does conditioning, and another group that does both resistance training and conditioning within the same program. And that the group that is doing both resistance training and conditioning in the same program would, uh, in effect, be uh, doing concurrent training. That's not to be confused with concurrent periodization. That's effectively training stuff that's designed to improve maximal strength, muscular hypertrophy, uh, muscular power all at the same time. You're effectively doing everything concurrently or at the same time. And you contrast that with conjugate sort of periodization, which is known as block periodization, where you have, this is a hypertrophy block. This is a strength block. This is a power block. This is an endurance block. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. 
Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we've defined that. Now we have to define the interference effect. And this goes back at least 35, maybe closer to 40 years ago now. Dr. Robert Hickson basically demonstrated that there was an impaired strength development in previously untrained males who incorporated both strength and endurance workouts in a 10-week training program. Hickson determined, uh, termed the impaired strength gains with concurrent strength and endurance training as the interference effect. Since that seminal work, the results from the majority of studies confirm that gains in muscular hypertrophy and strength are compromised when strength and endurance-based training are undertaken concurrently. It's an idea that there's this chronic interference from combining both of these two modes together yields a chronically overtrained or overreaching state where you get competing adaptations. So the endurance training uh, tends to increase protein synthesis in the mitochondria. That's like metabolic conditioning, whereas resistance training increases protein synthesis in the muscle. That's myogenic sort of conditioning or myogenic adaptations. Um, and so it's just logical, right? Like if you just did one or the other, you'd get better gains in that specific thing than if you combined the both things together. And so that's where we've been for, you know, since 1980 to, uh, you know, uh, to, to present. Uh, again, people are just like, yep, this, this, uh, this just makes sense. Okay. So what are the mechanisms involved here? Uh, and again, I, I'm just going to warn the listeners, do not let your eyes glaze over. If you just want to tune out for the next 60 seconds, that's fine. You don't need to remember any of these things, but I just want to kind of give you guys a lay of the land. So the main pathway for resistance training to drive sort of muscular adaptations, myogenic sort of conditioning is through this mTOR pathway. This is, tends to be impaired when resistance training is performed after endurance exercise. And that's a lot of the study design here. On the other hand, endurance exercise tends to inhibit elongation factors, which are responsible for increases in muscle protein synthesis. And that happens during the endurance activity. So it's thought that between that and this endurance activity-associated uh, increase in AMP kinase, AMP kinase, that also inhibits mTOR signaling, the way that resistance, which is the way that resistance training basically drives muscular adaptations, that, hey, look, yeah, endurance training tends to reduce or attenuate the sort of muscular adaptations you'd get from resistance training alone. It's kind of interesting, though, like that AMP kinase bit. Oh, AMP kinase goes up with endurance training, and that inhibits mTOR signaling. So that's how endurance training inhibits resistance training gains. Well, resistance training also increases AMP kinase. And so you're like, 
huh, maybe it's not it. Maybe the mechanisms are not exactly predictive if we look at this closely. So there's other mechanisms that have been suggested, such as an inhibition of satellite cells. So when uh, researchers combine uh, with a look at conventional resistance exercise training, that tends to increase satellite cell density um, after a training bout. But if you do a 90-minute cycling bout directly after lifting weights, the muscle uh, satellite cell density is completely suppressed. And uh, it looks like endurance training has its own sort of satellite cell response specific to improvements in endurance, whereas resistance training has its own satellite cell response specific to resistance training. Um, But as far as the data here on like, what are satellite cells doing in response to endurance training and, and resistance training doesn't appear to be a key factor, but this is yet another mechanism that's been suggested. Finally, Genes have been associated with the uh, presence or absence of the interference effect. So uh, you may have heard of this ACTN3 gene, which is overrepresented in power athletes versus a polymorphism, which is just a change in that particular gene called R577Z, which is overrepresented in endurance athletes. And this might describe a differential effect of exercise on these individuals. Uh, Just an aside, you know, Leah, when she first started powerlifting, her thing was she was like, I'm, I'm not really well suited towards powerlifting. I'm not like set up for this. She ended up doing a 23andMe test or something like that. And they did test her ACTN3 like genetic profile. And she's homozygous for ACTN3. Like Pro- she's proven just, freak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Proven freak. Yeah. So, but the whole point is here that there may be genetic differences that sort of either, um, increase the risk of this interference effect or decrease the risk of an interference effect. But I'm just going to summarize this. These are all mechanisms. And Austin and I care relatively little about these mechanisms outside of like general nerdiness. Because if they don't affect outcomes, then these are just twuds, time wasted on useless detail. And Austin, I could tell, I could just see his face, see his emotion. He's like, why are you saying that this, who cares? Let's get to the outcomes. Well, here we go. I will be the first to admit that there are tons of studies that show that if you combine conditioning training with resistance training, there's a decrease in strength gain, decrease in power gained, decrease in hypertrophy gained. The problem here is that these studies are usually too small to really make sense of what's going on. We're talking about a handful of participants, for example, or they're just based on mechanisms. And I don't really care what the mechanisms are. So what we should use instead, in my opinion, are meta-analyses. Those are studies of studies and systematic reviews to pool data together to get a better sense of what happens on average. So we can generalize this to our listenership. The two big meta-analyses we'll be discussing were published in 2021 and 2022 as updates to maybe the first meta-analysis on this, which was done a decade ago by Wilson et al., the one done in 2012, so over a decade ago now. And that meta-analysis, the data showed that peak power was reduced with concurrent training and that hypertrophy was compromised. A couple problems with that particular meta-analysis. One, peak power was analyzed by Wingate performance, so that's on a bike with a weighted flywheel. They didn't test things like jump performance, whether vertical jump, broad jump, or like how fast you could move a submaximal load on a leg press or a squat. So really hard to say like, okay, did power really decrease or like what's going on here? Also, the inclusion criteria for that meta-analysis did not include or did not mandate that studies had to have a control group where they only did resistance training. And so it was basically pooling the effects of different studies looking at folks who did both aerobic training, well, in this case, conditioning training and resistance training. Uh, And further, in the last 10, 11 years, tons of new studies have been published. So let's look at these two recent meta-analyses. The first one, 
was a meta-analysis of 27 studies done in 2021 by Petrie et al. And it compared leg press or squat one rep max in resistance training only groups versus groups who were doing resistance training plus conditioning. Uh, and they fractionated out the results whether or not the uh, based on whether the uh, subjects were untrained, moderately trained, or highly trained. In this meta-analysis, the one rep max for leg press and squat was negatively affected by the inclusion of conditioning in trained individuals, but not in moderately trained or untrained individuals compared to strength training alone. And so just if I read that, you're like, see, I knew it. Cardio is killing my gains. I just shouldn't do cardio. Uh, this requires us to take a closer look at the actual studies that were included. So I thought it'd be unique or interesting rather to take a look at like what studies showed the biggest sort of decrease in strength performance. And let's look at the other study that showed the maximum increase because there were studies that showed actually an increase in strength performance when they included conditioning. So in the study that saw that where they uh, saw the maximum decrease in one RM uh, squat performance uh, in trained subjects. Effectively, the group that was doing both uh, conditioning and uh, resistance training, first off, the resistance training was a circuit. They, <laughs> they were doing circuit training. Uh, and so if they did, uh, if they combined that with endurance training, their squat only went from 132 kilograms to 148 kilograms. So that's like 299, 299 pounds to uh, 328 pounds. Uh, but this is a half squat, by the way. So that's fun. Whereas the group that only did the circuit training, but no additional conditioning, their squat went from 132 kilograms or 299 pounds to 155 kilograms, which is 341 pounds. So you're talking about a difference in 10 pounds over the course of this 10 week study. And you're like, okay, so let's look even a little bit closer. Uh, this sort of decrease was really predominantly seen when they did the endurance training before the circuit training. And so when you look at like subgroup, subgroup analysis where they did the endurance training after the circuit, the effect was much smaller, not statistically significant. Also, the endurance training they were doing was hard. Basically, they, were, they ran at a VO2 ma their VO2 max, so the highest speed they could, they could go, that second sort of threshold we talked about earlier. Uh, half the time that it took them uh, to get to exhaustion when they actually tested their VO2 max. So they're running max pace at half the time it took them to get to that uh, full exhaustion. And then they rested, but it, it wasn't a complete rest. They were running at 60% of their VO2 max. So pretty hard intervals. And it's like, if you were going to set up a scenario to decrease somebody's squat, like improvement, this is probably how you do, how you do it. And so it was a half squat. The difference was 10 pounds after 10 weeks. I'm not particularly impressed but that was the maximum decrease they saw in any of this meta-analysis. And again, it was only in trained individuals and predominantly only when they did the endurance training before the circuit training, before the lifting. Yeah, and I know we'll talk more about programming and other aspects next time, but I think about how I set up my weekly conditioning at the moment. The vast majority is relatively low intensity. I do one session a week that's kind of like much harder pushing towards that like kind of VO2 max kind of target range. And I am smoked at the end of that. And the idea of, you know, doing a session like that multiple times a week and then trying to lift afterwards in a productive manner uh, seems insane. Yeah. So just, again, the validity of that particular protocol, <laughs> you just set up to fail. And honestly, after, you know, whatever it was, 10 weeks, a de uh, 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 the resultant difference being 10 pounds. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like, I, I think you could easily just chalk that up to inter-individual variations in response to training. 
which is again why we had to do this meta-analysis. I say we, this is why they had to do the meta-analysis in the first place to try to get a sense of like, is this a reliable finding? Okay, so there were other studies actually showed an increase in 1RM performance when combining endurance training compared to resistance training only. So this particular study was seven weeks long. They trained four times a week. They had a lifting only group versus an endurance only versus a combined trainer, concurrent training where they did uh, endurance and uh, resistance training together. And then they had a control group. So the group who did both endurance training and lifted weights, they took their squat from 102 kilos, which is like 225 pounds, to 126 kilograms, which is 277 pounds. And then the resistance training only group went from 101 kilos, so 222 pounds, to 120 kilos, which is 264, a smaller increase. And, you know, I could belabor the point here, but I think you guys get it. These are pretty small differences. Uh, And again, it really just depends in this particular meta-analysis, like when the the aerobic training or when the conditioning training was done. If it's done before the strength strength work, quote-unquote, although one with the circuit training is like not really a strength program, it, yeah, could potentially have a bigger effect. But if you moved it to the end of the session or separated the sessions, yeah, seemingly no effect. And so my general sense of this first meta-analysis is that, yeah, the effects on strength, if any, are only in highly trained individuals and maybe don't do your conditioning first, particularly if it's really hard and you care about your absolute strength performance. I just feel like you're just, if you were going to set somebody up for failure, like that's how you would do it. Thanks, science. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I needed this to tell me that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, A more recent, and in my estimation, a more complete meta-analysis was done in 2022 by Schumann et al. It reviewed 43 studies with over 1,000 subjects. The inclusion criteria, so the studies had to be at least four weeks long, had to have resistance training versus an identical resistance training program plus conditioning. So you couldn't like adjust the resistance training. And that's actually one of the issues when you look at the the research out here. Most of the time, the workloads are not sort of equated, meaning that the concurrent training, they do about half the work than the resistance training group. Um, so yeah, they in, the inclusion criteria mandated that, you know, you got to do the same resistance training program. We're just going to add conditioning to one group. And they tested maximum strength, power uh, production, hypertrophy, and the test had to be specific to the training. So if they were doing leg press or squat, they had to test them on a leg press or the squat. You couldn't do like isometric leg extension strength. And you're like, you guys weren't training that. Like, so you wouldn't expect to pick up as big of a difference uh, that way. They used standardized mean differences to communicate the differences between different groups. So we got to talk about what that is. This is basically the difference in average outcome between groups relative to the variability observed in the study. So if there's like a huge variation between like low responders and hyper responders, that's the variability observed within the study. And then you got to see like, okay, what's the difference in averages relative to that? to compare the two different groups together and get any sort of meaningful data. You can't just say, well, this group got this and this group got that, and you don't take into consideration the variability or distribution of those sort of improvements. Okay, so the way you sort of evaluate a standardized mean difference, like the numbers I'm going to give you, the lower the number is, the less important or less of an effect there actually was, the higher the number, whether it's positive or negative, shows a greater effect. So if it's close to zero, you're like, I don't know that I care. And if it's, you know, one or more, it's like, wow, that's a big effect. Okay. So the standardized mean difference for maximum strength, this is based on 37 studies on average, the standardized mean difference was negative 0.06, which means that barely, just barely, it looked like endurance training may have had a slightly negative but of dubious clinical significance uh, on maximum strength gain. 
And what's more important is that the standardized mean difference ranged from all the studies that were included from negative 1.37, so pretty big negative effect, all the way up to plus 1.99, which is a large benefit. Like, oh, you added endurance strain, you got much stronger. Um, And so taking all that in consideration, the authors actually concluded that there was no interference effect on average. And if I saw a standardized mean difference of negative 0.06, I'm like, that's irrelevant. I don't care what that is. That's an error bar. Okay. For power or explosive strength, the standardized mean difference was negative 0.28. So a little bit bigger effect. This is based on 18 studies. And the ranges for all the studies that were included for this particular outcome ranged from negative 1.6 to plus 0.22. So it does appear that there's a negative interference effect. But then you go look at these studies that they included, the 18 studies. The only time the negative values came up that were of any significance was when they did the endurance training less than 20 minutes uh, before performing the resistance training. So they did the, the conditioning first, less than 20 minutes goes by, and then they did the strength training or strength test. And you're like, okay, yeah. You mean they were more fatigued for the strength test? That kind of makes sense. When they split these up by more than three hours, though, that sort of uh, uh, negative effect of endurance training or conditioning on power production uh, sort of went away. So no surprise to me there. I'm like, look, if I was really trying to maximize power production, I would try to be as uh, rested as possible and not very fatigued going into that. Finally, for hypertrophy, the average standardized mean difference was negative 0.01. And I don't know that I need to explain this in great detail, but like that's not an effect worth worrying about. This is based on 15 studies. The range went from negative 0.67 to positive 0.28. The authors concluded no interference effect. They looked at different moderating factors to see like, hey, did anything really change the game here? And like I said earlier, explosive strength or power was affected more when they did the endurance training or conditioning in the same session as uh, resistance training, particularly when in, uh, the conditioning happened before the resistance training um, and it was in short order, so less than 20 minutes or so. Uh, but if you separate them out by more than three hours, really no effect there. The mode of conditioning, whether it was cycling or running, didn't seem to have a reliable effect. The frequency, so how often people did endurance training, did not have a big effect. And the training status didn't really have a uh, big effect, whether people were trained, untrained, etc. Age also didn't have a big effect. They s- separate these out into people under the age of 40 versus over the age of 40. Didn't seem to reliably affect the average improvement in strength, hypertrophy, or power. The authors concluded concurrent aerobic and strength training does not compromise muscle hypertrophy and maximal strength development. However, explosive strength gains may be attenuated, especially when aerobic and strength training are performed in the same session. These results appeared to be independent of the type of aerobic training, frequency of concurrent training, training status, and age. I I think I would uh, uh, wholeheartedly agree with these authors. It just seems like, look, if you wanted to set somebody up for failure on like a strength, power sort of test, you would do a bunch of conditioning beforehand and then say, all right, go get them, kid. (laughs) But otherwise, it it just seems like if the total training dose is correct for the individual, uh, people are likely going to be fine. Um, when, it, when going down the rabbit hole a little further, I kind of had the like opposite question, like, hey, what about including resistance training on conditioning? Like, is there a benefit there? Because like, we're only looking at like the effect on resistance training outcomes. What about the effect of conditioning outcomes? It seems that resistance training sort of interventions do not negatively affect 
conditioning training adaptations. In fact, it seems that after the inclusion of resistance training in uh, endurance trained athletes, uh, their endurance capacity is actually increased to a greater extent compared to those doing only conditioning. So in this particular study, it was a seven week long study. They trained four times per week. They had lifting only versus conditioning only versus combining the two versus control. The increase in the VO2 max in the group that did both lifting and conditioning it increased by about 13%, whereas the VO2 max only increased by 6.8% in those doing conditioning only. Also, there was no strength or power gains in the conditioning only group. And it's like, huh, why is every, you know, people are only concerned about the interference effect on lifting, but never the opposite. It's never like, at least, at least in our, our, our sort of world, although you do hear like high school coaches and other people on the internets that are like, no, don't do too much lifting. You know, if you want to be an endurance athlete, you'll get muscle bound. And it's like, wait, what? Yeah, particularly at higher levels of, of endurance sport, I mean, there are aspects of physiology and and that can that can have negative implications, but a lot of those have more to do with like size and weight that you're carrying. And it's certainly possible to strength train and not to gain a ton of weight in the process if you don't want to, and potentially some benefits if you're se- severely undertrained on the strength front. But as we've talked about before, as I'm sure we'll talk about again, like there is definite, you know, diminishing returns and an upper limit of how much getting stronger and stronger and stronger will benefit you at higher levels of, of endurance performance. But I agree. Um, in our circles, the, the, the concerns definitely seem to, to cut in one direction. <laughs> yeah. But like from a health perspective too, though, it's like you're going to need both of these things anyway. You need the musculoskeletal adaptations from resistance training. So the improvement in muscle function overall, in, increased bone mineral density, et cetera. And you also need the cardiorespiratory fitness from conditioning. You're going to need both anyway. So it's like the idea of you would only do one or the other for like optimizing your human potential is like, bro, no, you, you need both. All right. So let's summarize this whole thing here. Uh, there are different adaptations with some overlap and some unique mechanisms between resistance training and conditioning. Uh, while the short-term data and mechanisms can be scary if you just look at isolated studies, the long-term data and collation of the data in totality suggests that strength and hypertrophy outcomes are probably not affected in most individuals with concurrent training. And it's great for endurance athletes or conditioning focused athletes to include resistance training. Yep. Power may be compromised with concurrent training in the same session, particularly if the condition is performed directly before. Uh, but if you separate these out by a longer period of time, eh, uh, I'm not too impressed with the data here. This is all likely a nothing sandwich in folks who are untrained or moderately trained, particularly if they're just getting their feet wet with respect to conditioning. So it's low frequency, low volume, three times a week, two times a week, 30 minutes at a time. Like I would not be worried about that at all with respect to gains. There may be this dose dependent potential for an interference effect. If people go from like no conditioning work at all to like every day I'm running or I'm cycling or I'm swimming or doing something for like 45, 60 minutes. It's like, yeah, well, you don't really have any base. It's just like if someone goes, I'm doing no lifting at all. I'm going to lift six days a week. It's like, eh, I applaud the hustle. I applaud the effort here, but it's like, don't outkick your coverage, you know, with respect to total training load that you can currently handle. Also, there are large inter-individual differences in responses to training. And so while these are averages, like there are people who are going to have a more pronounced sort of interference effect and other people who have none and everything in between. Um, Still, you need both for health and performance outcomes, particularly in mixed sports. There are a few sports that are only like strength power sports and that are and other sports that are only conditioning. Pretty much every sport outside of like powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting or whatever are like 
you know, mixed modes. And so you're going to need both anyway. Sure. During periods of specialization for sports that are like predominantly strength power or predominantly endurance. Yep. You might have a reduced emphasis and reduced, you know, sort of frequency, volume, training load, et cetera, from the opposite, um, uh, sort of training mode. But in general, most training cycles should involve both. So the take home here, all the things we covered, First, let's jettison the term aerobic conditioning is the only way to get uh, this sort of conditioning done. It should just, let's just call it conditioning or cardio. As far as the duration needed to improve cardiorespiratory fitness, anything counts to accumulate uh, provided the intensity threshold is met for health. Performance gains may vary due to the principle of specificity. Uh, speaking of intensity, you can use metabolic equivalents from the metabolic compendium to ballpark. Hey, this is how hard it should be. This is how much it should cost. But you can use RPE uh, uh, as a sort of practical tool, sort of hone that in. Again, RP6 or so probably gets you to that threshold for moderate intensity conditioning. RP8 or above is probably vigorous uh, intensity activity. Um, and yeah, we'll cover this on the next podcast that you can do some testing at home to create your own individualized target heart rate for various zones of training. This is going to be most useful for performance improvements and controlling training fatigue more than just health. I don't know that you need to do that for general health, but look, if you're really trying to squeeze out a bunch of gains and really trying to control the total training load, yeah, you're probably going to need to do that. Long-term strength and hypertrophy outcomes are probably not affected in most individuals with concurrent training. Uh, and this interference effect is not really seen at all for resistance training on endurance outcomes, probably even beneficial. Uh, that said, power may be compromised with concurrent training if it's done in the same session with the conditioning work done first. So if performance in that particular session is important, give yourself a couple hours, three hours or so um, between the conditioning, if you're going to do that first in the day and your lifting session. Uh, it's unclear though how like workout performance is actually related to testing performance later on when someone's rested and the fatigue levels are low. And so I don't know that that's a particular, like the studies on attenuated power improvement are actually like valid into in situations where how power is tested in the real world uh as always load management is important don't outkick your coverage with respect to sort of total training load uh and then again as i said earlier you're going to need both conditioning and resistance training and anyways to maximize health and performance in most mixed sports in part three of this podcast series we're going to talk about how to program conditioning what are the zones of training how to figure them out uh, how to pick a particular type of conditioning and how to progress. So tune in next week and every week right here in the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me from beautiful Hawaii. He didn't have to do this, but he's here. And so I'm thankful for that. And uh, we'll catch you guys next week. See ya. you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? 
I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything from t-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets. And of course, their legendary best hoodie ever. So you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days, like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the French Terry collection or the rich and polished premium Slub Crew tee. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use Staple 20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20.